Well, good morning. My name's Ryan. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm one of the pastors here at City Church, Melissa. So glad to be with you this morning and to celebrate this Advent season and um, just to sing to Jesus and to remember His love for us. Um, If I haven't uh, had a chance to meet you before, I'll go ahead and tell you this at the end. I'll invite you to come forward. I'd love an opportunity to uh, meet you personally, um, to shake your hand, and just to get to know you a little bit better. But we are in uh, this study in Advent, and uh, as we opened this up, began the Advent season last weekend, uh, we are working through um, some of the the texts of Isaiah, the great prophet Isaiah, who told us of the coming Messiah, who told us of how God would redeem all of the brokenness and all of the mess that existed in the world, and he did that through the person of Jesus. Jesus. And so we look forward, obviously, to Christmas Day, and we celebrate this season, but the reason that it's so vital, it's important for us as the church, the church pauses in this season of Advent because we realize that it's important to, to just wait and to not get so excited about Christmas time that we miss the fact that we are created and, and should have this longing. The reason, in the same way that our little ones, our kids, they get so excited about Christmas and they're looking forward to gifts and all of the different things that come with that Christmas morning and Christmas day. As parents, as adults, as uh, just people of God, it's right that we should sit and think longingly and, and be desperate to see God move in our lives. And so we opened up with Isaiah 64 last week that taught us to long for God, to have that desperation, that desire to see God move in our lives. And I would just ask, did this week, did you have this season, this time of longing for God? Did you find yourself in prayer asking God, I need you to show up, God. I need you to move. I need you to, your presence to be evident in my life. That's what Advent is. We're waiting. Because we live in a season, in a time in history, where we know the promise has been fulfilled through Christ. We have Jesus. But we are also still waiting for that time to come. That day when He will return. And He'll make all things new permanently and finally. And so we're in this middle period of time in history where we know the answer. We know what is coming. But so often we forget it. Which is why... Spending time in prayer as we just did to remember God and remember His faithfulness to us is so vital so that we can look forward and so we can have this anticipation and this excitement over Christ's coming. I think too often we just miss that. We miss this, desire, this time and, this, and, and really this isn't just a season that we should live in for four weeks of the year, but it is something that we should live in every day of our life. But in this season where the church calendar, we set it apart to look forward and to kind of practice this act of longing for Christ, we miss that. We don't have that type of anticipation. So this morning, as the Hart family read for us, we're looking at Isaiah chapter 40. And through Isaiah 40, God is making a promise to us. In response to our longing, in response to the desires that we have and our need for Him, as we look and we say, God, we are desperate for You. We are desperate for You to move in our lives. Isaiah 40 is, in a sense, a promise to us that answers that desire, answers that question. And I would just ask, even the question itself, as we said, do you long for God to move? Have you found it to be true that all the things of this world will just let you down? 
One great pastor said it this way, when all human hopes have let us down, we might then be ready for the only real salvation that exists. When all of the human hopes have let us down, then we'll be ready for the real salvation that exists through Christ. You know, human promises and the hope of those promises, they're always contingent on something else. Just think about the promises that you make, the commitments that you make. There's usually always some equation there that has to balance out. I will do this if this happens to me. If you do that, I will do this in response. There's always this back and forth. Only God makes unconditional promises. He makes promises that only depend on Him. He makes the promise and everything to accomplish that, that promise, for that promise to be delivered upon, He holds within Himself. When we make promises, when we make uh, you know, uh, c- commitments, there's always some sort of a balance there that we're doing that in response to something else, or we, have to, we, we need something in order for that to be fulfilled. I promise to my children, you're going to have food tonight to eat. I don't have to make that promise because we're so blessed, but if I were to make that promise, I would say, you're going to have food to eat tonight. Well, that would be contingent upon me having the means to go out and purchase the food, which would be contingent upon someone employing me so that I'd have those means to go out and purchase the food, which would be contingent upon a bunch of people, you know, on and on and on. Everything that exists in our human relationships is always contingent upon something. God is the only one who makes a promise, and everything to accomplish that promise, to fulfill that promise, is within himself. That's what makes him God. And God makes a promise to us in Isaiah chapter 40 that we can hold on to. This sustains us through all of the doubts and when all of the human promises, when all of the human hopes are dashed and we find ourselves desperate for God. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah were written uh, by Isaiah, the prophet, to the people of his day. In a sense, those first 39 chapters are mostly Isaiah speaking to his contemporaries. If we read those, as we try to interpret what is being said, he's talking to his own people. When we move into Isaiah 40, it's as if Isaiah is transported and he's given this supernatural vision of the future. This is the future that is not where Isaiah sits today, but this future hope that he lives in. And he's able to see and he speaks about this. He speaks these words of comfort to a future generation that has yet not even experienced the turmoil that he is going to talk about. He's talking to them about a comfort that will come for an adversary, for an evil that has come upon them they haven't yet experienced in, when he's writing it in that moment. But we know the realness of brokenness. We know the reality of hardships. We know that things are not as they should be, as we often say in this world. We're very familiar with the broken things. Isaiah, in the first 39 chapters, he's speaking to his people who are distant from God, who are not listening to God. In fact, they're disobedient to God. And because of their disobedience, they are, God allows them to suffer trial in order to correct them. They go into exile. They're taken into captivity by Babylon. Through our teaching of Daniel and other teachings just over the last year, you've heard us talk about this exile over and over and over again. That's the existence that Isaiah is speaking to when he speaks to the people here in chapter 40 when he prophesies of this future. They are in exile, and they feel hopeless, much like so many of us do today. And so Isaiah, inspired by God himself, he speaks these words of God 
to the people who are grieving, who are hurting, who are longing to see God move. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and to cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Look carefully at these words. Again, these are people who God, because of their sinfulness, has said, hey, you're going to suffer some punishment. We all know that sin, yes, it is paid for in Christ through his work on the cross, and we're not going to get into all of the details of that in this very moment, but sin, yet, it, it still it has consequences. Even though it's paid for through Christ and we receive his grace and mercy, when we sin, there is, there's consequences. Moms and dads, we know this paradox very well. Yes, I still love you. Yes, I'll still maybe call you my son. But for right now, things are not going to be well for you. And so the people of God have rejected God and they've been sent into exile as punishment for their sins, their disobedience. And so God then sends to them this word of comfort and this promise in the midst of their exile. And look what he says, even while they're disobedient. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. He doesn't cast them off, even though they've been disobedient, even though they are in rebuke as they are been put into exile under, in Babylonian captivity. He declares them his people, and he declares himself their God. How do you think about God? When you envision God, more than likely, if you grew up in church, you see a Sunday school room with a blue-haired, beautiful young man, flowing hair. I said blue-haired. I meant blue-eyed. But just, just... Just for a moment, just envision, how do you see God? How do you think about God? Do you think of him smiling or frowning? With joy or with anger? I think that one of the reasons that we view God as as if we are constantly in rebuke is we forget who he is. I would go so far as to say that I think sometimes we feel bored with God. We feel indifferent towards God. We struggle to have a heart that would worship God because we think of God in those human terms. We think of Him so much like us. We have a hard time grasping that God is completely other than us so much bigger than us. And if we do think of him even as bigger, we think of him as in constant judgment. Yes, the people of God had been sent into exile because of their disobedience, but he still declares to them, these are my people. I am their God. He has not written them off. He hasn't called them no longer his. He hasn't forgotten who they were. He remembers them, and he's God. He had every right and every authority and every ability to just say, cast them off and forget. And yet, in the midst of their sinfulness, he calls them his people. In the midst of total failure, God's words to his people are words of comfort. Comfort my people, 
God doesn't say these things and He doesn't declare these things just when we are right with Him. So many of us imagine that if we are in good graces with God, if we're kind of doing the right things, if our lives have sort of been in a little bit going in the right direction for some season of time, that God is probably happy with us and He's smiling upon us and we're, we're happy to enter into His presence. But if we know that we have been sinful, if there's brokenness that exists in our life, there's things that we have done that we know counter God's Word, go against His commands for our lives, go against what He would want for our lives, then we think, no, I better not enter in. This is why I talk about this all the time. When I see someone in our faith family that is distancing themselves from the people of God, I generally am pretty aware that there's some sinfulness that is there because it's the sinfulness that is causing them to think that I need to get away from God. I need to get away from the people of God. I don't want to enter into his presence because I don't want to feel that rebuke. I don't want to hear that correction. I don't want to be aware or be told that there's something wrong. And God says to us, comfort, run to me, in the midst of your disobedience. Run to me when things are broken, when things are going away, the wrong way. I will comfort you. He comes with love, with grace. He speaks these words of comfort to us when we've really screwed it up. Not just when we've gotten everything right. Because here's what we all know, and I'll just tell you about my own life. Last time I got everything right? Never. Doesn't happen. And some of you are thinking, some of you that might not know me well enough, you're thinking, well, here, you're the pastor. You're supposed to give it. Nope. I'm an idiot. I have nothing to offer you other than God's word, God's truth, God's hope, God's promises. For years, if you haven't been around a while, they've talked about making a t-shirt that just says, I'm a train wreck, just for me. Because that's who, that's who I am. And God says, comfort. When we've done the stupidest thing. When we've said it all wrong. Yes, there is discipline. There's correction for these things, and that's right. We need that discipline. We need that correction but ultimately, God's word to us is comfort, even in the midst of the consequences of those sins. Those really dumb, that really dumb thing that you said just yesterday, it's going to have an earthly consequence, but it does not condemn you from hearing the words of God say, comfort And they don't condemn your relationship with God because God is a God who fulfills his promises and his fulfillment of those promises are found within himself to do. Jesus came and went to the cross for that really dumb thing you said just yesterday. And God says to you here, come, let me bring comfort to you. You are my child I am your God. That's what he says. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. The war is over. Your iniquities are pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. 
Guess what that doesn't mean? That doesn't mean double punishment. That means a double amount of grace. He's, he's using an eschatological term that says, in the end, grace will abound over those iniquities. You will receive double the grace for the sins that you have committed because of who Jesus is and what he has done. And so we long, as we sit in this season of Advent and we think about Christ coming, what we're longing for is we're longing for the day when all of those things, not only do we know them in our hearts, but we see them tangibly. We see Christ's return, and we see the warfare ended, and we see our iniquities pardoned, and we receive the grace of God in spite of all of our sins. That's the comfort of God that comes, and that's why we long for God. That's why I find it crazy to think that we could be bored with God that we could find ourselves not really interested in what he has to say. I get it. I get the flesh. I get the human. But when we think about, when we, when we ponder and we really consider and understand who God is and the promises that he's made to us and how he has overcome all of those things and he speaks words of comfort to us in the midst of our sins, how can we not be in awe of God? We will worship anything that gives us just the slightest amount of joy and hope. And we struggle to worship God, the God who says, I love you, and I bring comfort to you, and I give you peace in the midst of all the sins and the mistakes and the dumb things that we do. This is why we sing to Jesus, because we know that is true. And what is the comfort that comes? What is the promise that he makes in verses 3 through 5? He answers that. In the wilderness, or a voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the, of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the future that we have, friends. He says that there is a Lord who is coming. The King is coming. And again, where does He come to us? He doesn't come to us once we've got it all figured out. He doesn't come to us when we've entered into His temples or into His courts or into His presence. He comes to us where? In the wilderness, in the desert. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In the midst of all of the mess wilderness and desert being metaphorical for just the brokenness that we experience in the world. God says, I'm coming to you. The king is coming. We all love a good mystery movie where they're given some sort of a map or a symbol and we have to kind of follow their way around and they kind of figure out the answer to where they're going. God doesn't give us this map and say, here, find your way to me. And when you find your way to me, then I will bestow upon you all the treasure that I have get promised. No, he says, I am coming to you in the wilderness, in the desert. Prepare a way because I'm coming. He also promises us that he has a purpose, and that purpose will be fulfilled. Every valley shall be lifted up. 
Every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground become level and the rough places a plain. God has a purpose for our lives and it will be fulfilled. Let me give you some hope and a rebuke all wrapped into one. Whatever God intends for your life, it will be done. You have no ability to overcome God. That's why he's God. And he has a purpose, and it will be fulfilled. Do you know what happens when you repent of your sins? When you turn your life over to God, when you confess that, yes, God, I've looked for hope, I've looked for peace, I've looked for acceptance, I've looked for joy, I've looked for everything that I can think of that might satisfy my soul in another place other than you, and I found it all wanting. When you just confess that to God, when you testify to Him that His ways are higher than your ways, and you acknowledge that He is God, when you acknowledge that you're in need of a Savior, that there's nothing that you could do to get yourself into proper relationship with God, that there had to be a sacrifice that you didn't know how to make in order to get there, when you recognize that Jesus, the true Jesus that laid down his life on a cross and died and then took up his life again is the one who paved that way so that he could come into your life and restore that relationship with you. Do you know what happens when you really believe that? Every single thing in your life is turned upside down. The mountains become low. The valleys are lifted up. Everything that you look at just looks differently because you acknowledge who God is. That's the purpose of God for your life. You want to know what His will for your life is? It's to repent and to acknowledge who He is, to believe who He is, and allow everything else in the world to just be put in the proper place. The valleys to be lifted up. Whatever darkness, whatever brokenness you've existed in and you think, I don't know a way, I don't know where this is going to come, I don't know how do I get out of this pit of despair. Jesus says, when you turn to me, you will be lifted up. Or whatever pridefulness, you stand upon the mountain declaring that you've got this world figured out, you've got the cat by the tail, there's nobody that can take you down. When you confess that you aren't all that you were cracked up to be, you'll find yourself brought low and humble before God and that will be a place of peace and joy. Everything is just shifted around. The valleys are made, are lifted up. The mountains are made low. When Jesus comes to our, into our lives and we become desperate for him, that's what the world looks like to us. That's why, what is the testimony of so many in this room? What do we just think back upon as we were in time of prayer? We said that the things that should have defined us, those things that should have made us think there's no way that God is real, those things that should have caused us to be cast aside and forget who God is, none of those things were, took place. Why? Because God accomplished his purpose for our lives. And even though those things happened and those are real, we have joy. And the world looks and says... Friend, I know what you've been through. You belong in the pit. You belong in the valley because I know your life. And I know all of the trials and the tribulations. And you, that's where you belong. And the world says, how is it possible that you're standing on even firm ground? And we say, because Jesus is real, his promises are true. Or perhaps you're on the mountain 
and you feel as if everything is great and everything in your life, just you've got the Midas touch right now. And there will become a time, though, where you're standing at the base of the mountain and you're wondering, how will I ever get back up? And the world will ask, why do you have joy? Why do you have peace in the midst of these circumstances? And our testimony remains true because God's purposes for my life are real. Jesus is real. What he has done is true. When we turn to Jesus, the rest of the world, as it says, the uneven ground becomes level, the rough places a plain. And the glory, guess what happens as we testify to this, verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Now Isaiah is prophesying about this future event that will take place when we see this, but as we live this out moment by moment and day by day, the glory of the Lord is revealed. Notice, the glory of the Lord is revealed. God's glory, it will again be made known in this earth. He will be seen for who he is. You can sit here, arms closed, head down, half asleep. No, I'm not looking at you or picking on you because I'm looking down right now, so don't get mad at me for that. You can just kind of Think to yourself, nope, I got this thing figured out. I don't need to listen to God. I don't need to listen to that crazy guy up there talking all this noise. I don't need any of that. Here's what I can tell you, friend. God's glory will be revealed. And we will be in awe. We will find ourselves with no ability other than to fall on our knees and worship him and declare him as Lord. So whatever the circumstances of your life are that have caused you to sort of be in that posture, I get it, I understand. There are days where I just want to be in that posture. I just, I can't even help myself but just sort of have that. And a posture, obviously, just reflection of a heart. But when I think about what God has done and I think about how he's made the valleys play, uh, level and lowered the mountains and all of those things and I've re- as I repent of my sins and I confess to God and I see him come in and I, I hear him speak words of comfort to me, I can't help but declare of his kindness, to declare his glory. God has taken a back seat in so many of our lives. In fact, I would suggest in most of our lives. Even when we sing, Jesus, take the wheel, we're asking him to do it from the back seat. We still want to maintain that position as driver and as authority. But God says, my glory will be revealed. I will show you who I am. He won't be trivialized or made small forever. There's a day coming when all the world will see his glory. And if you want to know what that'll look like, think about when Moses is meeting with God on Mount Sinai and the glory of God just barely passes in front of him. Go read about that in Exodus. Or think about Ezekiel's chariot of fire as God's glory races towards him from heaven. Or think about what happened to the shepherds when they saw Jesus in the manger. 
Do you notice what it says about them in Luke? Go look it up. I'll tell you, just look for this word, fear. They trembled. And out of that fear and trembling, they began to worship. But His glory is something that will cause us to all be in awe. And as we prepare for His arrival, I want us to consider what would it look like if we lived with complete awareness of His glory in our midst and His coming glory today? What would that look like if that was our aim? If everything that we did was rooted in some way in saying, I want to bring glory so that the world sees God for who He is today through us, through the church, through the people of God. If that was our complete goal, if that was our intention in everything that we did. Think about it. We've been filled, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have been filled with the Holy Spirit. God dwells with us, in us. And we have been called to bring Him glory as we go out into the world. Does that that thought cross your mind? I would encourage you every morning, when you get up out of bed, you begin to make your way out the door. Figure out a way that might remind you, whether it's a note on the mirror, whether it's something hanging by your keys, wherever it is, figure out some way to, to remind yourself that you have a calling, you have an opportunity to reveal God's glory to the world. And when the, the world sees God's glory, they're left with nothing but to be in awe that leads to worship, repentance, speaking about Him. That's what we have. That's the future that we have. That's the promise that God has made to us, that we will see his glory revealed. And just in case you forget who you are, verses 6 through 8 remind us. A voice says, cry. And I said, what? This is Isaiah talking back to God here. What shall I cry? And God says, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God's reminding us, don't get too full of yourself. You are going to fade away like grass. My glory and my word are what will last forever. That's the only thing that lasts forever. And so, yes, he's saying, I want to bring comfort to the people. I want to bring hope to the people. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from human relationships. It doesn't come as we speak just whatever thoughts that we might have. This is why when we find ourselves in relationships, whether it's in our friendships, in our marriages, as moms and dads, as brothers and sisters, as just close friends, and we're speaking to one another and there's something to be said, it's best to just give God's word. Just speak God's word, because what we have to say, the thoughts that we have about life, generally are going to fade away. It's like grass that's going to wither away and be blown into the wind. We know that we ourselves can't be trusted. My own heart, because my flesh is temporary, I'm unreliable. My heart deceives me. I don't want to hear from myself about what my hope is, what my future is. I don't need anything like that. I need God's word that lasts forever. 
And finally, in verses 9 through 11, Isaiah reminds us, reminds the people of God that after hearing this good news, even in the midst of their exile, in the midst of all of their brokenness, the comfort that comes to their people to go and declare it. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom. So go to the mountain. Remember who God is. Remember what He has said, the promises that He's given to you. And know In verse 10, that God is mighty. He will accomplish His purpose, as I've said, for your life. God, every bit of wealth is found in Him. Behold, His reward is with Him. And ultimately, God is a tender shepherd. He will gather us up in His arms. Remember that He is coming. We long for that day when He comes, when He returns, when life is restored to what it should be. This is what Advent is about, longing for God to move so that we don't find ourselves wondering about who God is. We don't find ourselves thinking that God is just looking down distant from us in constant judgment. But we know that in the midst of our sins, in the midst of the wilderness and the exile, God, the King, is coming, and He's come to deliver a promise of comfort and of peace. That's why we sing. Let's pray, and then we will return. Lord Jesus, we thank You for this truth, the truth of Your Word, the truth that declares the promise that you have for us. And God, I do pray for every soul in this room, every soul that finds themselves right now in the midst of a wilderness or a desert, that you would use your word to assure them of your love, of the comfort that you wish to speak God, I pray for a people to be filled with joy, not because everything in life is right, not because the circumstances are perfect, but because we know who you are. And I pray that that joy that we have would compel us to go to the high mountain and declare who you are, declare of your kindness and your mercy. God, I pray that we would just long for you in the midst of whatever life has brought our way. Our hope would be found in you. We pray all this in your mighty name. Amen.
Thanks for joining us for the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sundays at 1030 a.m. at 2950 Cardinal Drive, and we'd love to meet you this coming week. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.